Okay, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of The Racing Line, where we talk about all things motorsport. And tonight we're going to be discussing the latest Formula One race at the Russian Grand Prix. I've got H, Joey and Mick beside me, where we're going to have a few discussions about, um, obviously, the pros and cons from that race. And then we've got a little bit of time for a bit of banter, where we discuss the um, our buzz question that's going to be released a little bit later. Um, before we get into any of the specifics from the racing this weekend, we thought we'd have a bit of a brief discussion about why we've started this podcast. It's um, happened fairly quickly. About two weeks ago, Harry just sent out a message saying, lads, let's start a podcast. We started thinking about um, what this pod- podcast could be, the kind of content that we could talk about, trying to establish some differentiation from other podcasts that are out there. Uh, and we came to the decision the, the decision last week where we said, screw it, let's just start podcasting this week um, and kind of just learn on the fly. So it's very new, um, this whole process. We don't expect to be pros yet, but um, hopefully over the next couple of months, we, we, we learn a little bit more um, about each other uh, and we can kind of put all this banter. I'm going to start cutting some stuff out when I do my edits. Um, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to call this the Nikita Mazepin podcast at the moment. Because <laughs> it's just the king of spin. <laughs> yeah, for now. <laughs> so, yeah. So, that's what we're kind of doing. We're just four guys that normally talk about motorsport anyway. And we thought, let's just put it out there on the airwaves and see if anyone else is, you know, listening to the same frequency. So, uh, Harry, do you have anything to add to that, mate? No, I think we just, uh, four mates, love motorsport. You know, we've all got our strengths. You know, I'm massive on Formula One. Mikey B is MotoGP. And you and yourself and Joseph love all of it. So IndyCar and supercars as well. So I think it's just, it's a good mixture and it allows us to cover everything. Yep. And, and also we want to kind of give some kind of differentiation for the Australian fans. Obviously we're all Australian as well. So IndyCar gives us a chance to talk about um, Scotty McLaughlin and his endeavours and also um, obviously with MotoGP and, and what's happening with, you know, Remy Gardner and Jack Miller, you know, it's pretty close to home. And then we've got supercars as well because everybody loves a bit of Aussie supercars. So we'll jump straight into it. Um, what a race it was yesterday. The last couple of laps became an epic for a whole number of reasons. So Harry, if you want to just kick it off with your surprises and cons of the race, uh, and then we'll go around the room. Yep. Uh, surprises. George qualifying in P3. Mega. That Williams is coming on quite quick. And I, as, as I said to you guys before, I would be happy as Larry if that Williams is faster than the Mercedes next year. But anyway, that's a chat for later on. Um, the pace of the Mercs wasn't as much as I thought um, in terms of the rest of the field. I thought they'd have a bigger advantage at this track as they have in the past, but it's good to see everyone else is catching up. Um, and the pace of science at the start of the race, oh, I wasn't expecting it. I thought Lando, if he got ahead at turn one, he was just going to go, but science managed to uh, even get ahead at one point. So he, um, I was really surprised with that. And that was with the old power unit because Leclerc had the new one, which is apparently 15 horsepower quicker. So... Um, disappointments, uh, return of the strolling ball. Every time I see this guy on TV, he's bowling into someone. Um, this guy couldn't even 
drift than Aston Martin on the on the pre the pre race uh, entertainment. So I, I don't know how Aston Martin are going to be challenging for championships with this guy as one of their uh, one of their drivers. But anyway, uh, Gasly, I was disappointed with his quality. Um, through FP one, FP two, he was rapid, um, and then all of a sudden, I don't know if the rest of the, the rest of the teams were sandbagging or what, but that 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 really surprised me. And um, <laughs> VB Valtteri Bottas, he let Max through like he wasn't, did not give a care in the world. I was like, there's no way this guy is letting Max through that easily if he actually cared. Um, I was pretty. Pretty disappointed with that. And the McLarens, the pit stop for, D- for Daniel Ricciardo. Last week, they pressure was on at Monza. They gave him the quickest pit stop. And then this week, was it five seconds? Put him in on his race entry, on his re-entry. He was, I think he was another three or four spots down than where he should have been if they had a better pit stop. So they're my uh, surprises and disappointments. Jay. Um, I'm going to carry from the race, mate. First, I'm going to continue what Harry was talking about with the McLaren. Um, I really think that this week showed how much more, uh, how much McLaren has to catch up to the top two teams, which is uh, Mercedes and Red Bull, obviously. Uh, I really think that last week they had no pressure to deliver because no one was expecting them to win. And they led from the front and they led well. But this week they had a lot of pressure and they had some good qualifying positions. And uh, first with the pit stop with Ricardo, they showed that they let the pressure get to them. And then I honestly believe that as a team, they should have taken ownership for um, getting Lando to pit and just don't give an option. Don't ask questions, just you know, make decisions because uh, all the best teams do that. And I think they really showed this week that that's where they have to work on. They've got the engineers and they've got the car now and they have to work on putting it all together with their leadership. Um, other than that, I think I was very surprised with uh, Williams in qualifying, but I also was thinking about it. I would like to, I'd love to know if they actually just have a very downforce dependent car, which works good in wet weather, because in the wet weather, that car is rapid. Uh, also, uh, Hamilton had a really bad qualifying lap, so. Um, We'll see what happens uh, in the rain next time. But other than that, I think that was my takeaways from that race. All right. And Mixie, so this was your first Formula One race since you've self-proclaimed 2006. How does it compare to um, to the exploits you've been seeing in MotoGP in recent years? Hi, guys. Um, look, look I, I wouldn't say it's my first race since 2006. I, I've definitely watched intermittently um, at times since then. But... Um, you know, since we're doing a podcast now, I thought I'd, I'd better get back into it and, and take some notice of, of F1. Um, it's a little bit different from MotoGP, but um, I believe I can get behind this quite quite quickly. I think I think there were a few things um, just from a newbie's point of view that I found quite interesting. Um, the track itself is actually quite a interesting track. Um, that that back straight is just long, just keeps going, and I, I found that. Um, quite uh, fascinating in the sense that it just provided a lot of slipstream moments and, and overtake um, opportunities with, with the, the braking zone there. So uh, that was quite interesting for me. Just the start of that race too, with the load the cars were carrying and the sparks in those first two laps were, were, were crazy. I, I found that pretty cool. Um, 
But in terms of what fascinated me most, I think I'll just piggyback a little bit onto what Joseph said. Team strategy came, came up big time. Um, and, and I did notice that McLaren, um, you know, they shot themselves in the foot at the end there. I, I do believe personally because, um, you know, Mercedes made the call and, and you're dealing with a, you know, soon to be um, seven time world champion. Um, and he went along with, he went along with the call and, and he comes in and ultimately wins the race. Um, you know, Lando, uh, I, you know, doing the young, the young guys thing and, and wanting to win the race, uh, you know, ultimately cost, cost him. I found, I found that a bit, a bit fascinating, a little bit interesting. I would have thought the team would have made the call there, but really, really at the end of, at the end of the race, you know, Verstappen comes second and the championship's tight. So yeah, it was it was an interesting first race back um, of me paying attention, but it was really really fun. Do you have something to add to that, Harry? Oh yeah, just just to piggyback um, off that um, off what Michael said in terms of McLaren, they did shoot themselves in the foot, but I think it's a massive learning curve for them. Um, these engineers. And Lando haven't been in a winning car um, for what, 10 years, 12 years, whatever it is. 2012, I think, was the last time they won. So before Monza. I think if this happens again, Seidel puts his foot down, the engineer puts their foot down and says, Lando, get in here. Uh, as much as I can understand his position, you know, he, he's leading the race. He's led the race for most of it. He doesn't want to concede track position to, to Lewis, but they should have put their foot down. Um, again, you know, DR said he lost it. I, we didn't see it on the TV. I think he said on turn seven, he went off, nearly hit the wall. So he's come straight in. Lando was like Bambi on ice at one point. He was he was struggling. So they should have said to him, get in here. Um, I think massive learning curve though, which is, which is good. If you think about it as well, um... As much as uh, Hamilton is racing Norris for first and second, uh, Hamilton isn't really racing Norris. This is now a championship race, and he's actually racing Verstappen. So from that point of view, McLaren will, will definitely know this for next time, but they're, they're in the prime seat because Hamilton and Mercedes aren't going to make any rash decisions to try and win a one-off race. They've got track position on the person who they're actually racing for a title with. They're not going to keep him on um, slicks if the leader goes in with um, on onto wets, especially because uh, Verstappen behind them has got hind, uh, not hindsight. He has a chance to see what the other team's going to do. So I think in terms of learning about these opportunities, uh, it's sort of like a team. Uh, it's a, like a good sports team who's not actually the best in their class, and they're good at um, playing when the other team is doing all the attacking. And they and they and they um, sucking in all the pressure, but when you're actually the team on, at the front and you have to do the attacking, which like which is what Lando was doing in this race, uh, actually learning how to play and force those opportunities to get wins is something that I think McLaren uh, from now on will definitely have to think about because they have got all the intent of being a world champion to the chip team, uh, and growing from that, you can see uh, like what Harry said that Ricardo was struggling before um, before Lando had the op option to come in. So they should have seen that and relayed that straight away. Uh, so I think in terms of growing as a team, 
uh, that's probably the um, best learning experience they've got. They've, they're going to have, but they really have to take that um, step from being a reactive team because they're they're pushing for those victories now to being a proactive team. I'm going to actually disagree with what you guys have been saying to be honest with you. We're getting a lot of um, audio from you, Joey. Um, I'm going to disagree with what you guys are saying because I don't know. Over the last couple of years, since McLaren have started to kind of figure figure themselves out with Lando and Carlos particularly, and now with obviously Lando and Daniel, how the team has improved has been specifically based on the feedback that they're getting from their drivers. And if you look at the way that the, they've been able to establish a rapport amongst their drivers for working together, using the feedback to, to come up with something constructive, that's how they've been improving over the last three to four years. And I don't think that today's race was, any, or yesterday's race was any different. I think Hamilton, in a, in a sense, got lucky because Verstappen and Ricardo came in the lap before. Um, they probably were taking a punt. As you said, Joseph, I think Hamilton was reacting more to Verstappen than obviously to Lando. And he saw that Verstappen was going in. He didn't want to kind of be left high and dry a lap later due to that decision. So he came in, you know, just to cover off Verstappen. And the other thing that we need to take into consideration, that corner of the circuit where the start finish straight is, where the pit lane is, there was really not a whole lot of moisture there at all. So on the on the other side of the track, it was quite heavy. Cars were going all over the place. They were using the feedback that, that Lando was giving them to make their decisions. And he seemed pretty adamant that the decision that he was making to, to stay on the... Um, on the hearts um, was the right decision. So I think from their point of view, they didn't really have a reason to kind of question it until they started seeing him coming off. And then, then obviously the next lap went around and it was a little bit more problematic for Lando. And obviously he's spoken about it since then. And again, with hindsight, um, you know, it's very easy to criticize, but you know, when you're leading the race, you come in a lap early um, you know, you see 50% of the time the person that stays out, you know, gets a gets a gain from it. We saw it in Austria in the MotoGP a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, exactly the same thing happened. So I, I can't really fault that decision. I'm actually really impressed, even though it was the wrong decision, to see Lando so kind of commanding of that decision during the race. It shows that he's a winner. It shows that he's got kind of that killing mentality or that killer mentality. And I, and I kind of thought, even though, he ended up finishing in eighth. Um, I kind of went to bed thinking, you know, that that was really a turning point in the way that I see that I see him. Yeah, I, I agree. It's Lando's first time leading a race, um, but I, I think because it was because it was his first time, they should have been a bit more forceful. But let's be honest: the reason why they signed they signed Daniel Ricciardo was to improve these kind of things, um, winning races. You know, being at the top, the top end. This is why they signed him. They spent twenty million a year on him. So I think this is a massive learning curve, and they'll next time they'll have more of an idea of what to do. But yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, um, I think it came down to little details. Like, even just looking at, like, I know it might sound silly, but how how often do you know weather events influence the outcome of races? And this this just happened to really impact the race in the last, you know say five to you know four to five laps and um 
you, you know, we made the point about McLaren and, and it being a learning curve for them. Well, it just shows how, you know, how much scope there is to learn. Like it, it, even a little detail like, you know, in, interpreting a weather map, it might sound stupid, but like, you know, McLaren made the call, you know, there was a, there was a time there on the radio where they make the call to Hamilton and they say, you know, if Lando stays out, um, he's going to be in trouble because there is heavy rain coming and, and he needs to come in. And, and then we end up seeing um, what eventually what eventually occurred. So I do think, um, you know, we're making the point that McLaren um, is progressing and that's fantastic. But there are those little details that I think, um, just like we saw with Ricardo's um, pit stop, that, that need to be addressed as well. All right, so a few more takeaways that I took from the race. I think the most important thing from a championship perspective is that Max essentially got a free engine from this race meet. Um, with a couple of 10 laps to go, he was sitting in seventh. He wasn't going forward anymore. He was actually losing ground to, I think it was Perez. Um, on who, not even Perez, someone got past him, Alonso. Sitting in seventh didn't really look like he was going to make any more improvements. And then obviously the rain came out, was able to get up to second. Um, and I don't think he would, he or Red Bull would have been expecting to win that race anyway. You know, I think if they had have come third behind Hamilton and Bottas, had that discussion been had on Friday, they would have been pretty pleased with that. Um, so for him to come second uh, with the new engine, it's a free engine upgrade. He might be behind in the points right now. What is it, seven, six and a half points or something like that. But, you know, that's, that's a race win. And he's got a free engine from that. So that's the kind of the biggest thing that I took away from, from that, from that race. Um, I also think that McLaren was strong over the, the race distance. Um, they were still nowhere near Mercedes. And when I was looking at the practice, particularly on Friday, you know, Mercedes were in a league of their own and probably the, the luckiest thing, you know, for everyone, for the fan was that, Mercedes didn't put their, the cars on, on one, two because of that little bit of moisture during qualifying as well. Had they put the car, on, you know, their cars on first and second, I think they would have ran away with that race. Uh, but the interesting thing to see is even though, you know, the McLaren is really, you know, not as fast as the Mercedes yet, that they struggle to get past. You know, we saw it in Monza. Uh, we saw it again this week with, you know, Hamilton when he was racing Ricardo. Uh, obviously, there was the issue with Ricardo's pit stop that, you know, affected that. And then obviously also Hamilton when he was racing against Lando. They've got the speed, but the McLaren is just fast enough um, that they can't really, you know, get past, which is, you know, an interesting point to take away as well. I think Carlos Sainz showed once again that he's a quality driver. I don't think that, um, you know, people kind of are a little bit, you know, up and down on, on, on his performances before he got to McLaren. He showed at McLaren that he was a top quality driver for two years there. He's gone to Ferrari. You know, he's been in Leclerc's shadow for the whole year, pretty much. Um, and by in his shadow, I mean super close to him, not behind him. He's been, you know, biting at his heels all year in a new car. You know, can't really ask much more for more from him. Um, George Russell's obviously proving why he's going to Mercedes next year. Know, moisture or not, to do what he's doing in a in a um, Williams to finish the race in tenth as well. You know, 
awesome. And I can't wait to see him in a competitive car. Um, some of the cons from the race. Botas is in a killer. You know, when you look at where he and Verstappen started and you look at the juxtaposition of their, you know, progress through the field over the course of the race, you know, it was night and day. Hamble, uh, Verstappen was making those, you know, the movement through the field look you know, as easy as it could be. And, and Botas was still struggling, you know, with people in 12th, 13th, whatever it might be. So, you know, I, I like him. He's not a killer. And I, I kind of think that, you know, this car might be the end of, of Valtteri Botas. I think when we go to um, Alfa Romeo, we'll kind of be there or thereabouts, but not good enough. Definitely not good enough to be racing Mercedes. Um, Sochi, it's interesting to hear what Michael said about the, the track. And it's good to get, obviously, someone who's never watched that track before, but I can't stand another year of that track. Thank God we've only got to deal with it for one more year. And hopefully this new Agora drive that they're building now for the 2023 Russian Grand Prix has a little bit more character. I've, I've looked at a few of the um, designs for the track already. It's a little bit more simpler in design. I wouldn't say that there's going to be a whole lot of passing opportunities just from the outlines that I've seen, but it kind of looks a little bit more traditional than, than Sochi. Um, Aston Martin. Aston Martin, you know, they were looking strong at different points over the course of the weekend. Vettel was in the top six. Stroll at a time during the race looked like he was moving forward. Again, you know, end of the day, they really had nothing to show for it when push came to shove. Um, and that's kind of what I took from the race. Did you have something to add, Harry? Um, no, I had something, but yeah, I can't remember. But I, I just think, oh, Sochi, it's just a series of 90-degree corners. Like, hmm. I don't know who thought it would be a good design. You know, if it wasn't for that pit straight, which is hmm. a K long, there wouldn't be much overtaking on the track. Um, hmm. There was a few on the back straight. I think Max got a few there. Um, I think maybe Daniel got a couple, but other than that, um, there's there's not much overtaking chances there, and it's not conducive to to good racing. They're they're lucky it rained at the end. It, the race was good. Don't get me wrong; it wasn't bad by any means, but that rain at the end really changed things up. So, yeah, I can't wait till they go to the new one. I found it interesting that uh, you know that it was around. Um a former Olympic village, like we've had conversation. I think there's been rumblings in the past of, you know, a Sydney, a Sydney race in Homebush and, and um, I might be wrong, but it's, I just found it interesting that they, they managed to put a track there. I did find that the long straight, you know, did provide some kind of, um, well, something to strategize for the teams because, they, you know, I think they make the point in commentary that the, the amount of strip slipstream the cars are getting down that straight influenced um, undercut strategies during the race. And I found that quite fascinating um, as, as to how teams were, were utilizing that whole idea of undercutting um, in the early to mid to mid race. And it would have been, you know, if, if what had happened at the end hadn't had occurred, um, it would have been, you know, I feel like that would have been a really big talking point, how undercut was used in the, in that middle sector of the, of the race and, and how, how pit, how, when pits, pit stops went well as opposed to when they didn't go well would have affected the, the outcome of the race. And then obviously what happened at the end happened. But um, I found that quite interesting that during the race, how teams were using it. And also 
um, how they were, you know, I suppose it's normal, but how they were calculating the time as to when they should pit and when they shouldn't. Also as well, I think that um, you saw at the start of the race when it was a logger jam with Russell and then Stroll right behind him. Because um, those cars are Mercedes engines, no one could actually overtake them down the long straight. So they were holding back all everyone who was trying to get through and Ricard and um and Norris and 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 science just broke away. Um and I think in, if you think if you look at it like I, I love Williams doing well because that's my team, but in for a race, I was like everyone who's who's watching this is gonna be frustrated that if it didn't rain, those two guys were running away with it because there was no um, spaces for anyone to overtake the slowest car on the grid, which or one of the slowest cars on the grid, which is a Williams. So, um, yeah, I think they definitely need to change that track up. Something that I've actually been thinking about recently, and I hope that it's fixed with the regulations that come into play next year, but I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily convinced of it because there's still going to be large amounts of downforce being generated from underneath the car. But the problem, you know, you know, people are talking about these new tracks and how they've got no character and, and things like that. As designs, they are full of character. I think the problem that we're having now in Formula One is that with the amount of downforce that's being generated and the kind of the perfect nature of all these well-manicured tracks is that, you know, there's really nothing that separates, you know, if, if I can go, you know, 10 tenths through a corner, because number one, there's, you know, no barrier on the outside. And number two, there's, you know, uh, no bump in the corner or things like that. And, and the amount of downforce that's being generated turns it into a straight anyway. Well, then there's really no advantage to a driver that's got a bit more balls who's willing to, you know, risk it a little bit more. And when we look at even cars from, you know, 15 years ago that didn't have the same le levels of downforce and the tracks weren't so well kept and you had a bit of grass or a bit of dust on the track and things like that. That's where the, where the you know, magic happens, if you know what I mean. Someone's able to push a little bit harder because they've, they've got the balls to do so, or the track has got some characteristics that make it unpredictable and things like that. And you know, today's a perfect example to make that comparison when you're, when you're watching like the indie race at, at Long Beach. Now, some people like Long Beach, some people don't. You know, Joseph will tell us later on why he doesn't. But that track is all bumps all bumps, you know, there's concrete barriers either side of you. Even though it's a street track, it's completely, you know, really quite difficult and, and it's a quite a ballsy track. And you see how much, you know, effort the drivers are uh, having to, to use just to keep those cars straight and to keep them out of the barriers. And it's something that, you know, we're missing in Formula One. When I'm watching the onboards, these guys are just turning, you know, through the corners and it doesn't look like they're having to, you know, control the car a whole lot. And then all of a sudden we get the rain. And that was the most exciting part because that's when you can actually see, hey, this guy's a decent driver. Okay, this guy's actually, you know, keeping control of this car in this difficult situation. We don't see it enough anymore. Yeah, I, I think um, you see it in Formula One at the old school tracks, Spa, Imola, Austria, where there's no runoff. It's gravel. It's grass. You know, if you if you hit the grass, you're going in the wall. Like, that's where you see the cream rise to the top. You know, you got these, I think, Sochi, Sochi, and there's a couple of others where there's uh, for, um, Paul, Ricard. Paul Ricard. The runoff at Paul Ricard is huge. You go off track, it doesn't mean anything. You just rejoin 
So I think I think we need to I think they need to look at you know putting some gravel, getting rid of those stupid blue lines, and making it a bit harder. Even that, like even even with something like you're talking about Spa. Spa is an awesome track, but imagine if they just put grass or gravel on either side of Eau Rouge, right? All of a sudden you're losing 10 kilometers off, you know, the speed that someone goes through there. And, and, and if someone's going a little bit faster, a little bit slower, because there's obviously those obstacles that they need to negotiate with now, you're going to get just from, you know, going down that back or that straight, you're going to get a whole lot more overtaking into that back corner because people don't have the luxury of, you know, flooring it through that whole section of the track. And then we're all getting to the maximum speed at the same time. You, you, like, Mike, sorry. You think about the great tracks that some of most of the great tracks are tracks that are so unforgiving, and and you know you're talking about gravel at Rouge or Radion, like obviously that that would never happen, but it would definitely change the dynamic of 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 the track, and and you also you also wonder like you know when you do think about the great tracks, and this might be something that we might want to talk you know about in another podcast, like in terms of ranking them or something but the great tracks always have that element of um you know not being forgiving and and having that you know if you're going to succeed here you need to really race on the edge so yeah after watching this race at soja you, you you know i did i did notice that you know all the runoff was was super forgiving and there wasn't really any moment there until the rain came where you kind of thought well car could land in the wall here um or really like i don't i don't even think there was an accident per se during that race was or it could have been one um but yeah it was it was it was something that I, I picked up on and i think that's a pretty valid point like you know is it is it it wouldn't definitely i wouldn't regard it as a great track um but i, I did find at the end the element of weather there was interesting the fact that it's so close to the sea and the rain came so fast did make it fascinating well to finish this segment just quickly as well, I've got one more thing. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, just quickly talking about the um, these these street circuits because I think the main um, quandaries with these street circuits is that in the last what three is it three years since they've changed the regulations and the cars have actually become substantially wider. Mm-hmm. That when you have a wider race car and there's two of them next to each other, you're losing quite a bit of space, um, which is something that people don't really talk about. But especially on these street circuits where there's walls hugging the inside lines um you, you're running around your your ability to run two cars around corners next to each other is significantly hampered as well and when i think about it and i look back at the last couple of years of formula one i think the 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 best years were just before this new hybrid era but also the cars back then were, were much um skinnier than they are now so you could actually get these dive bombing moves with enough Space for you to actually um, still get into the corner. So I think that's another thing. Like when when you talk about these street circuits, that the cars have become wider, but the tracks haven't become wider. That's just another another little thing to throw in there with um Hit-bit. with these circuits. Yeah. We're talking about tracks and talking about you know Bathurst coming up in a little over two months now. As Mark Scape says during every session of the Bathurst weekend, Peter Brock said, great tracks have consequences. And when you take away the consequences and you take away the, um, you know, the things that make them difficult or treacherous, etc., you know, people can, you know, run around 
without any fear of you know, having a mistake. And if there's no fear of making mistakes, well, then you can go flat chat. And obviously those indiscrepancies is what actually makes for good overtaking and good passing moves. So we'll push into the power ranking now that was posted on Instagram a little bit earlier. And I don't want to you know, spend too long going on it, but we'll, going from the bottom up, 18th, 19th and 20th. So this is, sorry, just to, to briefly talk about the power ranking. So what we're going to be doing is obviously like any other power ranking, we'll be rating our, you know, driver ranking for the championship. And obviously that is changed after every race based on performances. So it's obviously not a perfect science. It's definitely um, got a lot of bias and personal opinion and, and how people perceive the races uh, involved in that. And we're not kind of hiding that. But what's going to happen is every week, a different person will update the power ranking. So you won't really get the chance to, you know, influence the power ranking, um, you know, until your fourth race comes around. And hopefully what we're going to do is have a chance for some discussions and a little bit of arguments. And uh, and hopefully that brings about a little bit of banter as well. So um, I just want to know how you came up with your um, your matrix, your, your initial power ranking. Yeah, I have a bone to pick with you about uh, this power ranking. About, you are, you are biased. It's about, you it's are biased. 5% championship standings and it's about 95% eye test. So that's kind of how I, and my eye test is, is based on performances. It's based on um, a bit of conjos as well. But yeah, it's all, it's all, it's all biased. I love how, um, even though, you know, we've, we've covered this race, not, no one has mentioned the fact that Hamilton has reached his hundredth win in, in F1. And despite, um, you know, personal opinion on Hamilton and, and, and what he's like, um, you know, there's quite a strong feeling amongst this four um, about him, um, it still is a pretty, uh, you know, incredible achievement. And I think that should be highlighted as well. I think uh, Formula One's socials have covered it enough. We don't need to go any further. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about um, Hamilton is, and I was thinking about this when I was running today, funnily enough, if the regulations do what they're supposed to do and the changes to how much money people can invest in their race teams now. I don't think that um, this, these records are going to be broken, to be perfectly honest with you, because what, if looking from this year moving forward with the amount of you know, cost cap and, and, and kind of trying to create a balanced playing field for all teams involved, these records won't be broken, which is quite disappointing. Like on that, Ferrari's a legacy team. We know what they're like, right? fuel flow issues, all this kind of stuff, okay? Haas have set up shop at Maranello. Wind tunnel time is reduced based on where you finish. One day, Mattia, Mattia Benotto walks in and goes, we just leave the red car in today to, to Gunther Steiner. We just leave the red car in today, but it's Haas's time. I don't know. No, no. I think Ferrari's going to cheat it. How, you know how can they prove it? If it gets them closer to the front, I don't mind if they do, to be honest with you. You don't yeah, think was, everybody else is going to be doing the same thing? I was a bit disappointed with that power unit in Leclerc's car, to be honest. There was all this talk about how much better it is. And he, he I didn't see any moves from him, really, during the race. Yeah, but if you look at how difficult it was even for both us to get through the field. Um, yeah, but Leclerc's a killer. He is a killer, but he's not in, he's not in Botas's car. 
and he's trying to get past all these Mercedes and we found it difficult for the Mercedes to get past the Mercedes. So, yeah, one they're thing, all good. One thing, one thing I want to say about Hamilton quickly before we brush off that. At the end of the day, you can only race your competition and 100 wins is, if, if you think about it, is, is a, a staggering amount. And, and, and granted, the last couple of years haven't been as competitive as as I think any Formula One fan would like. Um, this has been probably the most uncompetitive time in Formula One history for a long time. Even if you think about how, um, how dominant Michael Schumacher was, uh, the gaps are pretty ridiculous at the moment. But still, 100 wins against still good competition. Like We, we, we seem to forget that um, Vettel was coming off four years of being a champion and his move to Ferrari was at the time, herald, heralded as like the new Schumacher. So 100 wins against that. And then even Max this year, like he's, he's what, what, what do you want to say? <laughs> do you know how many wins Hamilton was on when he left McLaren? Probably 13 or something. 21. Okay, 21, yeah. Yeah. He's got 79 wins at McLaren. You know how many wins Nico Rosberg has in, in Mercedes, sorry? 30? 32, something like that. And Botas would have a dozen. 13, maybe? Something like that. So, How many wins does Verstappen yeah. have? I think he's got six or seven. Someone That's can look it. it up. It, it may be a little bit more than that. You'd have to have more um, than that. Another pot, another time. But yeah, is, is, Hamilton, is Hamilton the greatest racer of all time? Or is he simply the greatest racer during an era of... Pretty average competition. Hamilton, I don't this. Hamilton is is the is probably the luckiest, not luckiest. He has had the, had the best insight out of any driver to leave McLaren at the time he did and join Mercedes. Like I said, another that's, quite another that, time, but I think it's probably better. Think about yeah, yeah. I don't, I, and say, just just quickly, I don't want to say he hasn't had driver competition. He hasn't had constructor competition. Yeah, that's what I. That's, the the, that's dri- what the I drivers have been to. good. I, I think the drivers have been good. You, you look at Alonso, you look at Max, you look at Daniel, you look at all these top class drivers. Kimi, they're top class, right? So I think it's Vettel, four time world champion. It's constructor. But yeah. Vettel's not. Vettel's not the same Vettel. That's another time. That's for another time as well. But um, I'll leave it here. No, no, uh greatest driver of all time ever lost a season to his teammate who became champion. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> Talk about this a little bit later on, but going into the power rankings, so bottom four, uh, Raikkonen, because he's missed a few races, Sonoda, Schumacher and Mazepin. I don't think there's really anything there. Poor Sonoda, I feel like he's lost a bit of his... He never really had any mojo, but he's at least pushing himself early on. Um, he reminds me of another guy that used to race for Toro Rosso that was crashing a lot, ended up being Max Verstappen. Um, hope he pulls it together. In 16th, I've got Gio. Um, the last two races have been disappointing. Before that, it seemed like he was kind of getting something together. 15th, I put Latifi. Uh, 14th, I put Stroll. Uh, and then 13th, Ocon. 12th, Vettel. 11th, Alonso, even though he had a decent race this weekend. Um, and then we've got Perez in 10th. And, you know, it's very interesting to see Perez's season started 
pretty optimistically, but he's fallen into that same, you know, flunk that Gasly was in, that Albon was in. Um, that team is so Max centric that the second driver, just for whatever, it, like it mustn't, it, it can't be the driver when you've got someone of of his caliber um, struggling as much as he is as well. Uh, in ninth place, I've put Russell. Like the guy's bloody awesome. What he's doing with that car, he got the lucky second at at Spa. Um, but even you know this race as well to put a third on the grid, you know, amazing. Um, particularly with the car that he's driving, and then to 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 finish it in tenth as well. When even during his race, he kind of looked like he lost his way halfway through the race. He was falling backwards, and then obviously he probably got a little bit lucky with the rain at the end. But even still. To be in the top ten with the with the Williams, you know, not enough can be said about the guy. I've put Sainz in eighth, even though he got on the podium, and that's probably more because of what the people above him have done, as opposed to you know his own performances. I think he's been super solid this season for Ferrari, particularly being his first year. Like I said before, he's been you know right behind um, Leclerc for for the you know majority of the season. Um, there's been a hair to to split them. Um, seventh, I put Gasly. He was really trending upwards a couple of races ago. Monza was definitely not what he would have expected after winning it last year, and he was kind of saying as much as well. It didn't really go to plan. Um, and then even this week as well, I think everybody would have expected him to do a little bit better than he did in qualifying based on his practice form. And you know, Harry raised it earlier that. Um, kind of other people might have caught up. I just think he didn't do a good enough job during that Q2, to be honest with you, because in Q1, he was looking really fast as well. Um, Leclerc, I've put in six. This race wasn't really his best, but he wasn't starting from a good position. It was always going to be difficult for him. Botas is in fifth purely because he's racing Mercedes and it's really hard to do too poorly with that car. So he's kind of in fifth by default, but he has done nothing recently to warrant him remotely keeping his seat to be perfectly honest with you ricardo in fourth first last week fourth this week kind of got a little bit lucky with the rain uh, but he's definitely trending upwards and obviously mclaren is trending upwards as well what they've been able to do over the last couple of weeks particularly with what seidel said last week about russia being a track that they were worried about and for them to come out and you know, nearly be a one-five ends up being a you know a fourth and an eventual eighth, but you know that team's coming along, um, particularly at the, at the low down force tracks. Lando Norris is in third, but you know I would love to see where he could be in this championship had he been in a car that you know was on par with Verstappen and Hamilton. He's only a handful of points behind Bottas at this stage, which is ridiculous. And then we've obviously got Hamilton and Verstappen. Even though Hamilton won the race, um, I think you'd be pretty disappointed that Verstappen finished second. Um, and I've put Verstappen at first still because even though he's behind mathematically on points, with the new engine and being less than a you know a win behind or less than a first second you know invert behind Hamilton, you know he couldn't really ask much more for that race or much more of that race. So. He's maximised that race. I think Mercedes will be going home, you know, this week thinking we kind of didn't get as much as we needed from that event. 
Um, so that's what I've put up. Do we agree? Joey? There's two things I don't agree with. Firstly, it's a power ranking. So it has to go off results recently. And um, young Danny Rick has got a win and a fourth in his last two races. And young Lando has got a, was it third? And an eighth. And a second and an eighth. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but you could, can you explain to me how young Lando is ahead of Danny Rick if it's a power ranking? Well, because over the course of the season, young Lando is still significantly. But it, it's, it's, not a, it's, it's not a standings, it's a power ranking. No, I understand that. Which has I, to I'm, be. I'm, I'm creating this power ranking with half the season in sight. And even though Hamilton. Uh, uh, Ricardo won last the, the last race. Botas, uh, Botas, Norris came second, and for all intents and purposes, he should have won today as well. And, well, we and Ricardo should have we, come fifth. Could we put this to the floor? He, but he didn't, and the he made a mistake. Test. I told you it's ninety-five percent eye test. Can yeah, we look, put this to the, the floor? This, you can't have a you can't have a power ranking in inverted commas without a pissing off Joe. And B, having some contention. Like, it can't be some kind of fixed state that, you know, is just dependent on Anthony's eye test. Like, I think, you know, there needs to be give and take here. Joseph's got a valid point about Lando. Then, you know, let's talk about it. But let's It's not, not about it. Lando. It's a, Lando has been better this year than Danny Rick. I agree with that. But the whole thing of a power ranking is that it has to take the last couple of results into consideration because it's supposed to change every race. So if we're doing a proper power ranking... And, and you look at the two last performances results, there's no way that you can say that Danny Rick is behind him in the power ranking. Fair enough. I, I think you risk angering Big H here because we all know that Danny Rick is his boy and um, I'm sure he'd have something to say about that. So, but Look, I don't, I don't mind Lando being ahead. He has much better season. DR has taken his time, as we saw at Renault as well, or Renault. Um, taking his time in settling in. Um, but I think I, the only thing I'm disputing is a couple of things, actually. Danny Rick wouldn't have, he shouldn't have been on for a fifth. Without the pit stop, he was on for a podium. All right. He lost, what, three seconds? Yep. I think science should be higher. He's only a couple of points behind Leclerc. No, he's think- ahead of Leclerc. He's ahead of the, the only. That's 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 the other thing on this on Anthony's yeah. the way he's ranking it. How can he be behind him as well? Please explain well, yourself, Anthony. Okay, so again, a couple of pole positions. Yeah. Well, okay, I'll, an I'll eye start test with an eye test. The first thing, exactly, it is definitely an eye test. So if we've got if we look at Leclerc and Saint over the course of half the season, with really no exceptions, Leclerc has been. Faster than Saints by Science. a tenth, between half a, half a tenth and a tenth. And in the races, he's normally finishing ahead of him. Now, I'll say coming third, this race significantly boosted his driver's championship points for, for Saints. But I don't think that as a body of work, he's above Leclerc at this point. And I would agree that he should be higher. And I said that earlier. But when I look at what, you know what, I might, in, in hindsight, I might say Gasly and Science could switch because Gasly's had two lackluster races. But what he's doing in a Toro Rosso is phenomenal still. 
And what was the other point that you were that you were having issue with? Me, well, uh, yeah, Danny Rick and Lando. Well, no, I'm not going to change that. The last I thing I'll I, say that, I'll, that that's quite interesting though is when we didn't bring it up in the race, Ricardo had issues, yeah, but there were pit stop issues from a bunch of teams this week. It wasn't just McLaren. There was an issue with Perez. There was an issue with both. Was it Botas? There was Botas. an issue with. Um, Ricardo. So there was a few pit stop blunders this week, and they all seem to be on the left rear tyre. So just an interesting tidbit as well. That's one thing that I noticed in commentary that they kept making the point about the, I think it was the front right or the front left wheel graining early and it being um, have influencing the cars to do with traction early during the the tyre um, what? The tire wear, I suppose, and then they, were, they also made, yeah they made the point that as as you know as the tire wore even more, it did um, smooth out and give them more traction towards the end. So that was another part of the of the strategy that I found really fascinating in the race. I just thought I'd add that in before we move on. Yeah, I, I just want to say um, in regard to the pit stops, whoever whoever's idea it was to to change the way the pit stops work, I think it was at Spa the new regs came in where it wasn't automated anymore. It's ruined the pit stops. Like Red Bull did an 11-second pit stop at Monza. They were doing 1.8 two months Better. ago. Oh, I, don't, I don't know. It's uh, – I'm not a fan. I prefer the old way. But, in, yeah. In terms of giving some spice to the show, if that's what they're planning, it's definitely done that. But I think we've been so accustomed to these lightning fast pit stops, and you and you come to really marvel at them, and 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 it then really becomes part of the on the driver because the pit stops are so automatic that now that these this little bit of doubt can get thrown into the race from the, from the team side. I think it's it's in ruining drivers' races. It sort of takes away that whole gladiator on the track thing a little bit. Tell you what, it definitely adds to the theatre of the of the event. Like you know, people talk about F one, you know, losing some of its mojo. Um, but you know, having having watched that race yesterday and, and seeing the error there and how that influenced Ricardo's race, you know, early in the race when he was doing a really good job, I, I thought of fending off Hamilton. Um, yeah, it's through through an interesting spanner in the works that that ultimately shaped his race, but also um, Hamilton's race too, because it. You know, essentially forces him to try and undercut um, Ricardo. It's definitely going to be good for Netflix, I think. All right, so let's move into the next section of the podcast, and we're going to have our regular buzz question. So the buzz question is designed to be a question that prompts some kind of debate, some kind of uh, contradiction, some kind of contention amongst us four. Um, and today's question is, who was the best F1 non-driver world champion? So the best driver to be racing in F1 who didn't win. Um, all four of us have done a little bit of research um, to look into eight different drivers and to present their claim to the best non-world champion. And what we've done to kind of make it a little bit more relevant, because none of us here are really over the age of 30, is we have taken um, drivers that have been racing since 1990 well harry's a little bit over 30 but we've taken drivers that have been racing since 1990 um just so that we're not picking up you know the classic legends like you know ronnie peterson etc let's make it relevant to 
to us, to drivers that we've seen, drivers that we've, you know, um, had a personal uh, eye test for. Um, and we'll go from there. So it's going to be a bit of a round robin. We'll go from eight to four to two. And then let's see if we can come to some kind of unanimous decision about who is the best non-F1 world champion since 1990. Harry, kick it off with your first two drivers for me, mate. Yep. So I've uh, gone with uh, Rubens Barrichello. Classic. And a bit of, a bit of Aussie bias here, uh, Mark Webber. Um, so I'll start with, with Marky Mark. Um, 215 races. It's a decent stint. Nine wins, 42 podiums, 13 pole positions, 19 fastest laps, um, four constructors championships with Red Bull. Um, could have won in, in 2010. Um, we all know how that Korea. went. Korea. Um, and Turkey with the the whole Vettel issue. I think that turned the team against Mark, uh, especially with our good old helmet in the background making these decisions. Um, you know, Seb was clearly the Red Bull junior, the favourite. Um, I, I think Mark could have won that season. Um, but also tw- 2004, when he uh, finished his time with Jaguar, could have gone to Renault. Good old Flavio wanted him to sign with Renault, but... Uh, Mark wanted to sign with Williams, which was, which as we know now, terrible decision. Uh, Fernando goes on to win 2005 and 2006 World Championship. Um, but also he was instrumental in developing that Red Bull into the, what the car it was for the four-time champions. He was just unlucky that his teammate was the German. Um, Rubens. 322 races, which is the second highest. I think Kimi broke it earlier this year or late last year. Um, 14 poles, 11 victories, 68 podiums, and 658 career points. Um, He was forced to play second driver to the great Schumacher, Um, but he was pretty instrumental in winning the world championships from 2004, uh, from 2000 to 2004. With the third place in 2002 and 2004. Um, he then moved to Honda, uh, which, as we know now, became Braun. Um, Jensen started off on fire, winning the first few races, that double diffuser. What a time to be alive that was. Um, Rubens finished the season stronger, but the, everyone else had caught up by then. So McLaren, Ferrari, all of them had, had managed to catch up to Braun. So he ended up finishing third. But I think I think Rubens is up there. Just uh, I should have made this claim probably before we started this section, but there is a reason why um, these guys aren't the world champion. Well, I thought to make it completely obvious. And, and I think all of these arguments that we're posing can be shot down because these guys lost to people during the last 30 years that were faster than them. Um, but you know, with that being said, uh, and and with that in mind, let's we'll be optimistic about you know these drivers as well because they are still some of the the fastest you know drivers in the world. Um, okay, Mark Webber. I'll start with a bit of a rebuttal to Mark Webber. And I'm a Mark Webber fan. Um, he's a little bit of a botas to me. Um, yes, the was it 2009. The career year or 2010? Uh, 2010. 2010. Started the year really strong. Um, 
was also fortunate that Vettel kind of was nowhere for the first couple of races of the year, had a few issues as well. But I think even from, you know, midway through the year, Vettel was, you know, significantly faster than him and, and Mark was doing enough just to kind of stay ahead. He had those two great races um, at Monaco and Silverstone where he went with the back-to-back wins that kind of really cemented his place as a championship contender, um, but then capitulated in Korea. Um, so I honestly think that you know, he could have been a world champion. Um, I think the Renault um, point that you brought up, I never really thought about before, but um, that actually would have been a more viable option for him to win a championship, I think, than Red Bull. Um, because, you know, once Vettel won that first championship, I don't think there was really, ever really any chance that that Weber was going to catch him. Uh, he just definitely didn't have the pace. He had tracks that he was obviously really strong at. He always performed at Silverstone. He always performed at Melbourne. Sorry, not at Melbourne, at um, Monaco. Um, but over the course of the year, um, you know, he just, he just didn't have it. And it was probably a little bit later in his career as well where he had lost a little bit of his edge. Can I just say, based on what um, point Harry made, well, I'd completely forgotten about it, if I'm being honest. Jaguar, what a livery. I just thought I'd say that because that, that was one hot F1 car. What a livery. It was probably the, the fastest thing about that car because it didn't go too fast. They paid Eddie Irvine a gazillion dollars. Ford were paying Eddie Irvine a, a gazillion dollars and then they looked on their, um, on their you know, the items that were costing them the most money and the people in Detroit didn't even know who Eddie Irvine was. So that shows how, how strong that team was anyway. I want to go from Michael's segue into my first driver, which was Heinz Havold, Harold Frenzen. And the reason I want to do that is because Michael's saying, what a livery. And what livery? The, Jordan. The Jordan livery is the greatest livery in Formula One of all time. Yeah. I think you need, um, you need to make this its own. I think, I think, I think this will Thanks. be... We have to, we we have to do a ranking of the greatest F one liveries of all time. There, there well, needs to be the most contentious I'm, topic. I'm, there I'm needs to be an episode on this. Surely, I'm tell you this right now: out of the four greatest liveries of all time, Heinz Harold Frenton raced in two of them, because the four greatest would be the Jaguar, the Stuart Ford, the Jordan, and the Winfield, Winfield Williams. Williams. And yep. Heinz Harold Frenton raced in two of those cars, so he deserves the, um, to be a, so he deserves to be a world champion. Just because of uh, that <laughs> sexy card. No, 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 no. I like it. So he's he's my um he's my reasoning behind Howard Frenton. But having said that, I'll put it up. I'll, I'll say this as well. Research researching this explains me why they're not world champions. So I'm I'm rebuttaling myself already. Heinz Howard Frenton, three race three race wins. So all in ninety nine. The year that no, he came third in the championship, I think. He came third twice. Now here's the thing. He came third twice. He came third in 97 with uh, the Winfield Williams. And then Schumacher was disqualified. So he then got promoted to second. Actually, no, this was the Rothmans Williams. My bad. This was the Rothmans Williams. So he got promoted another, to another second. Another great livery. Another great livery. But he, lo- but he lost this. He lost to um, Jacques Villeneuve in that season. Uh, and I don't think that season was really anything special. But coming third... Is, is a pretty good feat once. But then two years later in the Jordan, which was not the best, was not the best car on the grid like the Winfield Williams was, he came third to Mick, uh, he came third in the season 
behind Mika Hakkinen and Eddie Irvine. And then I'll preface this by saying Schumacher broke his legs this year. So already we're yeah, like, oh, what happened there? But with two races to go, he was only 12 points behind Hakkinen and um, his car blew up. His engine failed at the second last race, which sort of put him out of the championship. But in hindsight, when you, when you think about it, had he been in a better car that year under that form, he could have been a world champion because my second driver was David Coulthard, only had success when he was in the best car. Um, David Coulthard had 13 victories over a 15-year span, 62 podiums. Uh, but really, when you think about it, he was only in that upper echelon in in the best car of the time, which was that McLaren partnering Mika Hakkinen. Um, before that, he was he was decent in the Rothmans Williams, and after that, he was mediocre in the Red Bull. So I'm going to vote myself saying that out of my two drivers, no, I no, think no, friend- you can't do that. You got to wait. Oh. <laughs> you don't get to vote. You actually don't get to vote. You just present. And we'll, oh, we'll, well you, you tell me. Well, let me just say one the, thing about David Coulthard. If you took his stats though, and you got rid of the the years at Red Bull where he was obviously developing that car from the the Jaguar, which was nothing special to the race winning you know car of of the early two thousands, um, his stats would look pretty good if he was just a Mercedes driver. To be honest, with you. thirteen wins is an impressive haul over a what, three or four year period, maybe five, five year period. Yeah. Um, which is no mean feat when you're going up against Hakkinen and Schumacher. But having said that, that was the only time that you could say he looked like a like a um, world championship caliber driver. And I can't remember which year it was, but one of the years he was um, close to points with Schumacher halfway through the season, and then after the um, after the Monaco Grand Prix, his points. His points totally bombed, and he came second in the season, but it was not even close. I think it was like fifty points he lost by, and in that time, fifty points was a was a massive, massive gap. It's still a it, it's still a massive gap, but like even more, yeah. When I think of DC, I think best chin in F one. And when I think when I when I think of DC, I think probably one of the one of the greatest ambassadors for the sport in terms of the way he presents himself and presents the sport and talks about the sport. Um, it probably would have been good if he was a world champion, but he's like a, he's like a Rosberg who never won a championship. Could you make a point that Coulthard is the greatest teammate of all time? No, Barrichello uh, is that. Yeah, Rubens. But I think that Rubens Barrichello was not a killer either. Awful. I, I, you know what? I just thought this now. He only finished got, second in the championship got, twice. Has someone got Massa on this, on this list? I do. Because Massa was a world champion for a couple of seconds. <laughs> I know. And it wasn't that wasn't that an interesting um, end to a season. I, I'll, I'll never forget that. So should I, since we're talking about Massa, should I jump into my yep. two drivers? Yeah, please then? do. Please do. do. So I, my first driver is actually one of my favourite drivers and my, one of my most hated drivers all in one. Juan Pablo, the big JPM. So Montoya, only in Formula 1, for four and a half years, but it seemed like he was there forever in the early it's an enigma. So, yeah, um, seven wins, thirty podiums. 
And I was thinking before, if he only raced for four and a half years and about 18 races a year, that's 30 wins in roughly 100 races. Oh, sorry, like 30 podiums that. in roughly 100 races. Which is not I'd, a bad haul. I'd like um, to say quickly as well, Juan Pablo is not the greatest Formula 1 driver ever, but he's probably the greatest all-round driver ever. Let me keep going. So he had seven wins and 30 podiums, which are stats that are similar to Alan Jones and Keke Rosberg, who are both world champions for Williams, all done in four and a half years. Early on in his career when he was racing for BMW, he was either you know chewing at um, Schumacher's rear diffuser or his engine was blowing up because that BMW had a tendency to be fast but unreliable. So... I think that in those early years at, at Williams, he definitely showed the speed, but that car's reliability was never going to give him a realistic chance of, of winning the championship. In his first year, um, he lost the teammate battle to Ralph Schumacher, but the next two years um, beat Schumacher both times in, in the, the teammate battle. And, you know, Ralph Schumacher was no slouch. Um, he moved to McLaren at the same time that Kimi went there. And like I said before, there's a reason why these guys aren't the world champions because they're normally losing to the world champions. And, you know, obviously Kimi during his time at Mercedes was rapid to say the least. The first half of his fourth season at Mercedes was, you know, nothing really to write home about. There's a lot of poor finishes, a lot of DNFs coming to grips with the car. But if you look at his second half of this, that, that first season, um, you know, he had a lot more podiums, he had five or six podiums and, and a win or two as well. So his second half of the season, if you were to extrapolate that over the course of the year, would have would have um, shown him to be much more competitive against um, Raikkonen. And then obviously by season five, he did about four or five races and then went into NASCAR trucks and Pedro De La Rosa had to do the rest. So he never really gave himself a chance to... Um, to become a world champion, he always showed the speed. And obviously when you look at his exploits in IndyCar as well, you know, winning the Indianapolis 500, coming second in that championship and going on to win Le Mans as well now, he's always had the speed, but he's probably his Latin flair and his Latin passion um, didn't, wasn't conducive to a, a very corporate um, Formula One. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, his ego got in the way of him becoming a world champion. He was always up against it, you know, with inferior cars to... Schumacher, but when um, the car and the tyres, you know, was on par or at times, you know, performing better than the Ferrari in the beach zone, he um, was able to take it. So he's my first and, driver. And also, just quickly, you've just made me think of a new topic as well that we have to debate one day. Most iconic uh, Formula One helmets, because especially in this day and age, but drivers are changing helmets every three weeks. Um, I really think that's been lost. So Don't get him um, started. <laughs> Don't get started I, on helmets. I really, I really think um, Juan Pablo had a, a really iconic helmet that we can debate one day as well. All right, let's, let's put a pin in that. And my second Sorry. driver was Pipe Massa. 11 wins, 41 podiums. When we look at the 1996 World Champion Jacques Villeneuve, 11 wins, 23 podiums. And then when we look at Damon Hill, had slightly more wins, was in a much better car. He had 22 wins, but over the course of his career, he only had 42 podiums. So with the wins and the podiums, there's there's two, the 96 and 97 world champion that he was, you know, pretty much on par with and never really had the, had the chance. He had 2004, 2005 was with Sauber, kind of nothing really to write home about. 
um, were his formative years, let's say. Um, 2006 and seven was paying his dues at Ferrari, definitely the number two to Schumacher. And then 2008 was his coming out party, uh, was champion for half a minute um, before obviously Lewis Hamilton took over um, block in the last few corners at Interlagos and went on to win the championship. But you know, at that time he was definitely one of the, the faster races in Formula One. You know, it was two or three, maybe even four years that you went to Interlagos every year and doesn't matter if you're starting from 12th or from first with that um, Brazilian flag on his race suit, he was always going to win that race. Um, and then obviously 2009, there was the incident at the Hungering and his career never really was the same after that. He was at Ferrari for a couple of years after that and never really, you know, received the same or achieved the same level of success that he had before that. And the interesting thing to think about with, with Massa was before Rakkinen won the world championship for Ferrari, um, and only won the championship with one race win that season, no one really kind of got close to what he was able to achieve in the Ferrari, obviously, apart from, you know, Schumacher. So Schumacher, you know, did all that winning left. Ferrari kind of lost their way. Massa, you know, won a, a bunch of races for Ferrari, still could have won the world championship realistically. Um, and then obviously they had Alonso after Raikkonen as well and never really did anything or struggled to be competitive during that whole time as well. So um, Massa, kind of, I feel like that was a lost season. Then obviously 2014 to 17 was at Williams. Got a bit lucky with the new regs and Williams having the Mercedes engine as well. And even though their car was nowhere near competitive in the downforce department, it was, you know, that kind of showed how good that Mercedes engine was. Um, so, yeah, those are my two drivers. Massa really should have been a world champion if he didn't have the issue in 2009. Who knows what his career would have been like. He obviously took a step back after after that incident. And obviously there's Juan Pablo Montoya as well. And that takes us to the last two drivers that we're presenting. And Mickey. Will yeah, be I, feel like, I feel like I've been put on the spot here a little bit. Um, but yeah, the two the two drivers I've nominated, um, Jean Alesi and Jano Trulli. Uh, Jano Trulli being a racer that I followed quite um, quite well during his time at Toyota, which happened to be my team um, at the time. Um, but I'll just go back to Alesi, who um, obviously had zero championship titles, two hundred and two. Um, races he was a participant in, but 201 actual starts. He had two pole positions, one win, 32 podiums, and four fastest laps during his career, with a total of 241 points. His first race in 89 and his last race in 2001, with his only win um, coming in the 95 Canadian Grand Prix. And just having a look at his um, his career, he's a bit moving around quite, quite a bit, um, start um, of his career and then and obviously at the end as well um, starting with Tyrrell after winning Formula 3000 and then um, not staying there long before moving to Ferrari 91 um, you know where there was a little bit of a discrepancy because he'd signed a contract with I, I believe two other teams Williams being one before Ferrari swooped in and, and won his, his signature which he obviously took because it was a, a lifelong dream of his to race for the the red, the red rocket. Um, 
throughout 92, 93, 94 and 95, he, he managed to be with Ferrari, obviously with only the one win um, in 95, coming in Canada before moving eventually to Benetton, um, where he partnered up with Gerhard Berger. Um, 97 was also with Benetton, but the car wasn't really um, going anywhere. So he moves to Sauber in 98 and, 90, and 99 um, before finishing off his career with Prost and Jordan. So um, a checkered career, to say the least, but um, he was definitely a name of note, um, you know, whilst we were growing up in F1. Um, but, yeah, that is my first driver that I've put forward. Did he ever That's nearly it. win a championship? Sorry? Did he ever nearly win a championship? Um, no, not. He's not, not a great guy. Not, award. not to not to my knowledge. So you know, I was kind of I was kind of dealt a rough hand here because all of you people decided to take the you know the the races that I had in mind. But um, yeah, I, he's 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 got to be up there surely. Um, but John not close to winning it. Spent five years in a Ferrari that was not even close to being competitive, and he mm. he signed a deal because he wanted to race for Ferrari. Imagine his career if he had have signed in '91 with um, with Williams. Williams. He would have been he, he would have had the best car in '93, '94, '96, '97. He could have been a multiple time world champion because his exploits in Formula Three Thousand in his time at Tyrrell, you know that that was the trajectory of his career. He signs a deal with Williams. Reneges on that, goes to Ferrari, has six years doing nothing. He got, what, maybe six or seven podiums, one win. And then, obviously, he just flooded around at the end. Um, I, feel like, I, been, I feel like he's a product He could have of... been a world champion, but not even close. He's like the Hulkenberg back then. Yeah, I feel like he got hard done by um, as well, in, in the sense that Shui was definitely on on the rise when he, when he leaves Ferrari and Shui... Walks into a car, obviously much actually, more improved, but with, actually, with a actually, much with a much better setup as well. So um, interesting thing to, to think about as well. The second the second racer that I, or driver that I am putting forward um, is Yano Trulli. Um, as I said, uh, race from ninety seven to two thousand and four with two hundred and fifty two starts in F one. Um, four pole positions, one win, 11 podiums, one fastest lap, and 247 total career points. Again, another racer who did not come close to winning um, a championship but was there or thereabouts, you know, more or less in the top half of, of the standings most years of his career. So Yano starts at Minardi, Minardi and Prost in 97 to 99, moves to Renault in 2002, and then spends the largest stint of his career between 2004 and 2009 with um, Toyota, who were, who were new to the F1 arena. Um, I think Yano, you know, helped that team progress to a point where they were pretty competitive um, by 2008-ish. Um, you know, he, he was there for the duration of that project and with a, a range of different teammates, but um, he was just he was just never like like we've said with a lot of these races, just didn't have that killer instinct and um, was not, not, notable in qualifying, um, especially in 2007, 2008, getting a lot of high qualifying positions and then not being able to translate that pace into the race. So always, like I said, there or thereabouts. Um, he leaves um, Toyota, obviously, when the team folds in 09 and finished his career um, 
with Lotus in 2010 to 2011. So yeah, they're my two races. And the interesting about Yano truly was I, the eye test would have suggested that he was a lot more successful than he was when you look at his actual, like even he was considered a, a, a gene, like a qualifying guru, but he only had one pole. Mm. He was always putting it behind Schumacher, but, you know, front rows, but, but really no poles. Decent in qualifying, but never really, um, like, like you said, on pole. Once he he, left, he, he left the wrong team. He left Renault to go to um, Toyota, which was like going from an established team to going to a brand new project. I think that's probably what hampered him as well the most. But, but saying he saying he was uh, going to be world could have been a world champion was like saying Ocon could is a um, nearly world champion because they both got the same amount of wins. Like I said, um, a good racer, but not even close to being a world champion. Interesting thing also about Trulli was if you look at his head-to-heads against his teammates, he obviously had Button, he had Raul Schumacher, Timo Glock, none of these guys were slouches. His head-to-head um, performances you know, was far superior. The only issue with his head-to-head was when he went to Caterham and he was racing against Kovalainen, definitely the twilight of his career, he got absolutely smoked. He might have, like If you look at his stats, it was like 2-15 to 15 or 3-16 to 16 in his last two years. But prior to that, he lost to Button in 2002, I think it was. He lost to Frensen early on in his career. But most of his seasons, he was the number one driver in the team. Um, he kind of never really just had a car that was going to be competitive enough. And when you when we're talking about drivers like David Coulthard and Montoya, and you know these are drivers that never won, let alone the champions that he raced again as well. And it kind of makes sense that he finished, you know, fifth and sixth and seventh in the championship fairly regularly because the competition that he was up against um, was in some cases far superior and in other cases slightly superior. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go around and we're going to eliminate four of the drivers and then we're just going to, you know, again, just keep voting till we get to one. So in the first round, everybody gets to vote except for the person who proposed the drivers. So Harry obviously proposed Weber and um, who was the second one, mate? Rubens. Weber and Rubens. I'm going to say that um, I'm going to say that Rubens was a better driver than Weber. Joey? Uh, I think no, undoubtedly Rubens. And Mick? Um, Yeah, you have to go with Rubens here. Weber kind of killed it in career, didn't he? Rubens goes 3 0, which is. Pretty comprehensive. He had, he, had, he had more than one good year. That's the other thing as well, as the, mm-hmm. as runner-up in two different teams. All right. Then, Joey, you presented Frenson and DC. Yeah, and I'd like to vote for Frenson. You don't get to vote. <laughs> I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote DC. Okay. Yep. DC. Yeah, I think that's a pretty obvious one. Cool time. So again, we've got three. This is more comprehensive than I thought it would be. I thought there were going to be some arguments anyway. So DC and Rubens are going to be our first semi-final. Maybe we should have spread some talent around then, you know. Um, <laughs> I wanted there to be a bit of a debate. Um, I think both of mine could be eliminated off the bat, but um, my, two were, my two were Alacy and Truly. So um, have your pick, boys. I'm going to go with Truly. I don't think Alacy was ever in the position to 
show his true potential, but we never saw it either. So I'm going to go truly. I would like to let it be known that I really don't want to vote for either of them, but as part of this game, I will vote for um, Yano truly. But I really think that both my drivers should deserve to go through, or at least, <laughs> at least this maybe even 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 Mark Webber could go in over over this side. I think yeah. you skewed the draw the wrong way. Mm. All right, Harry. Yeah, I, I'm with I'm with Joey there. Um, yeah, truly, why not? See, I, see, I can't vote, but I would actually make the point that a Lacey could make the you could make the argument that he was racing at a time with a a wider talent pool amongst the in the paddock. Um, you could make that point. You could also say that it's utter BS. But um, I, I actually thought whilst doing some reading, some limited reading on the two, that um, Alacy was actually racing at a harder time, um, considering the, the dearth of talent across the paddock um, in the early lucky, 90s. Lucky your vote doesn't count then, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, we've got DC against Rubens, and we've got Truly against... No, I didn't get to vote now, but the winner of Montoya against Massa. I think, um, I think you'd have to go for Massa, but yeah, you'd have to go for Massa. Mickey. I think you know, in, in a one-off race, I'd always go for Juan Pablo. So out of Massa and Montoya, um, yeah, I'd have to go with Massa. I think he's more con- he's more of a consistent racer, but um, Montoya was lightning fast during those that during that time at, at Williams, wasn't he? I think I think as well. Just quickly, we we keep saying Montoya was lightning fast, but at the time when Massa was going for that championship, he was also lightning fast. And how um, good were Williams at the time that Montoya was there? I mean, that that's probably Williams' peak, um, one of their well, peaks. Anyway, get blown up. The other thing that we we never got to see the um the downside of Montoya because he left after four and a half years. He was never in a team like an obscure... We're talking about a lot of these drivers driving for obscure teams at the end of their career. He was Williams, Mercedes, see, uh, Williams, McLaren, see you later. So we never really... Did, Monto- see, did uh, Montoya go and win the IndyCar Championship after he quit? No, he came second. He won the, he won the Indy 500 Indy and won a few NASCAR races. And Le Mans, yeah. Mm. Yeah, Massa. Massa, Massa. Yeah, look, I think we have to go Massa just on the fact that he was world champion for like 30 seconds. If he actually won that world championship, there wouldn't be the debate on whether Schumacher Lewis Hamilton were bloody... Well, he wouldn't be in this conversation, would he? So... <laughs> That's a very good point. All right, so Rubens against DC. Where are we going? We've got four Rubens. Now, so we've got to come to some consensus. Rubens. Rubens. Mickey. I feel like I feel like Rubens was closer to his teammate over his time with Schumacher than DC was with Hakkinen. Rubens only came second twice in his years at Ferrari. How many times? And, and and DC only came second once. He wasn't DC wasn't racing the like amazing Ferrari. He, he was driving McLaren. an amazing McLaren. Now now look, I'm I'm actually going to go with DC here. Um, DC as well to go against the grain. I think Barrichello unbelievable racer um and obviously an unbelievable teammate in an unbelievable car during a you know a two-horse race era you could say um cool being on the other side of the fence but um with again with another unbelievable teammate in Hackenden but I will say that um I think Coulthard you know 
pro- proved in his time at Red Bull that he, he, he could also be competitive to an extent um, and also help develop a car that was starting off um, and, and make it competitive. But, you know, he's got to be there just because of his accent. Oh, what a sexy accent. The, Scot- the Scottish David Coulthard. I mean, come on. He wins it just, just for that for me. And um, Barry Keller was, a, was a bit of an interesting, um, odd-looking character. But, yeah, Coulthard, um, just, for, just for a bit of spice so it's not one-sided, I think, yeah, he'd do it for me. Harry, this, this is dependent on you now, mate. Where are you going? Yeah, yeah look, um, Mikey, I just want to keep this G-rated, buddy. So, um I'm going to go with DC. I think even if it was two two all, I think that would give it to DC based on a like. If, we, if this is what we're going to do moving forward, if we get two drivers that are you know two two all, it's going to base it on the nicer looking helmet. And DC had a far better Oof. crash helmet than Rubens, mate. Rubens had to put a little bit more effort into that one. I, I really feel like if, I really feel like a driver comes second twice in two different cars. They deserve to, to get it over a driver who came second once in one car. But, but you was, voted. You've, you're all wrong, but you've all voted. <laughs> he, was, he was second best in the fastest car for, you know, five years. You know, that doesn't say a whole lot. Anyway, so we got, we got DC stacked up against now the winner of, um, who was it? Massa against... Truly. Yano Truly. <laughs> Massa against Yano Truly. This is going to be a difficult one. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to vote for Truly because I'm Michael, going with Michael sold me that he was such a nice guy. I think. <laughs> anyway, don't, don't start. Let's not, let's not, let's not downplay his the nice achievements guy. of Yano. Okay. His nice guy status and one win, I really think you can't deny it because if, if DC is getting in, I'm going to give it to Yano. Yano all the way. I'd love to My see head. Yano versus... um. DC. You're going, if you're going to win one race in your career, I mean, we're better than to do it at Monaco. I mean, come on. Harry, Iconic track. Oh, do I need to answer? Um, yeah. Massa. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second, but yeah, Massa. And Michael's pretty straight. Sorry, go. I think it's pretty straightforward. It's Massa, but if, if we're talking about, you know, a likable person, someone who put a sticker of John Paul II on his crash helmet when the Pope died, you know, he got a few blessings, but those blessings didn't translate to more wins, unfortunately. So, I'd like to, I'd like to just make a statement as well of how preposterous having Yano truly in this is, because if we want to say one win at Monaco, why isn't Olivier Panis okay, there? He was a nice guy as well. <laughs> so many nice guys. <laughs> Not enough killers. And he That's and he won it. He won it in a worse car. He won it in a Prost. Yeah, it was in Ligier, to be honest. Ligier, yeah, okay. To be, to be honest, only six people finished that race, so um, that's difficult to. to we forget that. Out. So let's go with the champion. Well, we got the champion. It's Felipe Massa, the greatest driver never to win a world championship. As you can, as you can tell, the level of depth that the research went into and the level of you know um, stats that we that we. You know, put into this section means that this is an indisputable fact uh, in the F1 world that Massa was the greatest driver never to win a world championship. Um, and quickly before we finish up, today was obviously the last day of the um, IndyCar season. Uh, this is something that we're going to be talking about moving forward. So um, congratulations to Alex Pillow um, on getting the job done. Uh, it was made significantly, significantly easier for him 
early on when Pato Award was um, you know, spun around on the formation lap, and obviously he's in, his race never really took off from that point. But with Polo finishing fourth, it wouldn't have really made a difference. Um, I think that moving forward, and particularly after this year, uh, IndyCar is definitely ready to explode. Um, firstly, with the, the drivers that are coming into the series, if you know, Joseph can attest to this, looking at how far IndyCar's come over the last 10 years, 10 years ago, it was pretty much North American centric for all the drivers that were competing in it, obviously the Scottish Italian Dario racing as well. But apart from that, there was you know, a lot of you know, ordinary drivers. But when we look at the caliber of drivers that are racing there now, Alex Polo, who obviously came from um, the European scene, raced in Japan. We've, we've got Scott McLaughlin, who also became the rookie of the year this year. Um, and, you know, significantly the fastest Australian driver um, that's been on, on our shores for the last, you know, couple of years. Um, and then obviously drivers like Pato Award and Colton Herder and Joseph Newgarden, who are, you know, obviously the top drivers in the category as well. And they're, you know, racing with the European drivers at a high level. Um, so the, the category is ready to boom. It's great to see a bunch of, of races winning. Um, and, you know, this was a, a great way to end the year. The last point that I will make is that um, news came out today that, you know, Penske, after buying the you know, ownership of IndyCar, has also bought out the ownership of Indy Lights. So Penske Entertainment, um, starting from this weekend, is now the owner of the IndyCar feeder series. Um, and, with what, and with what the they've been able to do with just IndyCar in the last 12 months, um, you know, obviously bringing back, you know, crowd numbers, um, you know, getting a, a video game established as well, which is going to make it more relevant to a younger audience. It's, I think it's only a matter of time till we see um, the, the junior series, you know, start booming as well. Um, you know, it's, this is only a few years back from there being 11 cars in the, in the whole series. So, if they're able to continue building from the recent success of this series, um, I think that there's going to be a lot more international attention on the championship. So great season for those who, who watch the whole you know, event, a great race, captivating throughout. Um, and hopefully this is something that we can delve into a little bit more in 2022. Yeah, I agree. I, I've only just got into it this year. Um, it's, it's good racing. The only thing, I'm not too sure on the ovals yet, um, but, you know, the other circuits, oh, I'm really enjoying it. The the um, Laguna Seca race was was awesome. So looking forward to watching more of it in 2022. I really, um, I think that this year really showed how, um, well, I think the greatest thing about IndyCar is they get so many different drivers from different parts of the world in there. Um, we got Scott McLaughlin in there. We had Roman Grosjean in there as well, um, who could have probably debatably in the last couple of races um, nearly snagged that rookie of the year. He's been absolutely on fire. But also yeah, um, over the last couple of years, we've seen the, the average age of drivers like drop dramatically in this series, which was probably uh, a couple of years ago a big problem. There was a lot of like um, driver turnover just between the same drivers. Uh, but now with McLaren's team, um, Padre Ward and Askew, and then you have Polo, even Marcus Ericsson. Um, and Marcus Ericsson came fifth in the championship this year. That's like, he was he was really consistent. Um, I really think that this is probably the, the best year of IndyCar we've had probably for a decade. 
um, even in terms of just the amount of teams that there are now, there's not as many four-car stables, <laughs> which was a staple of IndyCar maybe, what, four years ago, what was it? Um, and even, like, you see that the the drivers of, of, of five years ago really um, have taken a backseat this year to this young young crop of drivers led by, you'd say, Polo this year, but probably over the last four, four years, um, Newgarden uh, and Rossi. So I think for, the, for, for that spectacle, if they can maybe chain, uh, just maybe put a, get rid of uh, my favourite track, Long Beach. <laughs> Other than that, I think the, um, the series is going to hit another massive boom. I think, I think that's where we'll leave it for this weekend, gents. Thanks so much for jumping on. I mean, obviously, it's only the first podcast. There was a, a little bit of, you know, growing pains with it, but I feel like the discussion is pretty robust. If you're still listening to this podcast 90 minutes in, I think now would be a good time to ask you to, you know, give us a follow, give us a like on, you know, any social media platforms that you might be viewing us from. If you're listening on any of our uh, podcasting apps, whatever they might be, please give us a follow there as well and a a like. Um, And hopefully we've um, caught you at least for another um, podcast next week. Our discussion point for next week is going to be the... um, I already forgot what my buzz question was. I'll post that up on the socials sometime this week. We're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining the Racing Line podcast this evening, and we hope you have a great week where next week we'll be discussing the uh, MotoGP, upcoming MotoGP round. So thanks so much and have a great night, guys.